0: here in just a second so we can pull that one up and we'll say those those ver- those uh, those in just a second but before we do I uh, want to just mention uh, I have so enjoyed walking verse by verse uh, or book by book in these Old Testament uh, minor prophets. It's been an encouragement to me. It's been a blessing to me. And uh, I'm excited to dive into the Word of God this morning and to see what God has for us. Uh, but before we do, let's uh, let's say these books of the minor prophets in order. I want you to know where they're at uh, so that you're able to find them. Whenever we say, hey, turn to so-and-so, you'll know where to look, all right? And so we're going to say these in order once again. And hopefully this has been a help to you as we've been going through it so that you can know a little bit better where the books of the bible are we'll start uh left uh group and then we'll we'll go down the right group next and uh we've got the books of the minor prophets in order and so say them with me as we are are learning them together starts with Hosea. It says this, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All right, great job. You're learning. I hope that you're learning, and uh, I hope that you'll, uh, you'll, you'll start to plug in and know where these books of the Bible are, and I've so enjoyed uh, going through. We're giving an, a bird's-eye view of these books and pulling out a few specific truths from them to help us so that whenever we go back and we read through them, we're not just skimming through them because we don't know what's going on, all right? Hopefully some of these things you've been able to take notes over uh, that you'll be able to go back and refer to so that you can know when you come to them in your Bible reading what's going on, what in the world is is happening, who's talking, and uh, what's taking place. Well, today we come to the book of Joel, the book of Joel, and that's where we're going to be this morning. The writer and the writing of the book of Joel, when it was recorded, to be honest with, is very... Diverse uh, when it comes to uh, and uh, the the scholars debating when it was written and the reason for this is because we don't necessarily have a a a, a point and we don't have a, uh, some of the other ones say hey uh, they, I served during the reign of Hezekiah or I served during the reign of uh, 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 maybe uh, one of the other kings of, of of Israel Josiah or or Manasseh or or some of the other kings. We don't have that in the book of Joel. In fact, we don't have anything that really puts him in a location, in a place uh, to when this was taking place. And so some have, have said that this could be as early as the 700s BC, whenever it was written, or as late as the 500s BC, okay? So it's a very diverse area of time that this book could have been written in. But here's the reality. It doesn't really matter when it was recorded because the truths that we find in it uh, they they go all across time. And they cover all of the 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 scope of what we've looked at in the Word of God and the Minor Prophets, and they continue to 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 be true in today's age as well. Uh, each week, I get texted uh, by a couple of different preacher friends who let me know that they're praying for us, and usually they'll share something and just you know just let me know that they're praying for our, our services and things. and And this morning it was interesting. I got a text from uh, from one of those guys, and he said, "Hey, I'm praying for you." And he said, "This last week I was reading through the Minor Prophets." I read through the book of Joel, and he said, I want to share with you a couple verses from the book of Joel. Now, you're going to see here in a minute, this message I told Tressa this morning, I said, whenever we preach the book of Joel this morning, people are going to think it's never going to end, (laughs) because we're going to spend a a chunk of our time in chapter number one, we'll spend the majority of our time in a couple of verses in chapter number two, And then we're just going to spend just a little bit of time in chapter number three. But it's going to feel like it's never going to end because we're going to spend so much time on the front end of this, okay? But listen, uh, stick with me, okay? It won't be as long as what you think it's going to be. And I believe it's going to be tremendous encouragement to you as we go through this book of Joel. And then focus our attention on two verses that he texted me this morning. I said, man, the Lord must have been in it because those are the two verses that we're going to spend the bulk of our time in our service this morning. And we'll get to them in just a minute in chapter number two. Now, most of the minor prophets that we've discussed, they deal with the judgment at the hands of the Assyrians, or uh, the at the hands of the Babylonians. We, we've talked about both of those. We've, we've talked about the destruction that came in 722 at the hand of the Assyrians to the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And then we talked about the coming destruction that was going to come in the late 600s at the hand of the Babylonians there, or the Chaldeans, the same group of people that, that was going to take place in, the, in the, the late 600s B.C. And we've been discussing some of those things as we've been walking through But as Joel gets into his book, in chapter number one, it isn't from some people that the destruction was coming. In fact, if you look down with me in verses two and three, we find this. He he begins by saying this in verse number two Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Here's what he was saying. He was getting that. He was saying, listen, what's happening, what's taking place is something that we've never seen it on this magnitude before. The destruction that's happening. He says, this is something that you're going to talk to your children, and they're going to tell their children, and they're going to tell their children. I remember growing up in Indiana uh, that that my parents, they used to say, I remember the blizzard of 1970, whatever it was. <laughs> and, and you'd hear people talk about it. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember that. And I remember, you know, the snow was this this high, and you couldn't even get out of your house, and all this different stuff. And they, they talked about the blizzard of such and such. and Maybe you, you can think back on, a, on an event, something that took place, and, and it's passed down, and, and, and you tell your kids, oh, I remember whenever I was a kid, and, and this happened, you know, and, and and we share it with them, this, this incredible event that took place. Uh, one of the things that's amazing to me today is whenever I talk to young people about September of the 11th, and so many of them say... Yeah, I wasn't born. And uh, I'm just like, oh my goodness, that's unbelievable. In fact, I would say most of the teenagers, most of the young people in this room this morning were not born at September 11th, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me. But uh, hey, nonetheless, it seems like yesterday to me. Uh, I mean, like uh, all of us in this room, we could sit here, and I'm sure most of the ones that were alive, you could say, I remember where I was when I found out that the Twin Towers uh, were, were attacked whenever America was under attack. I can tell you exactly where I was at that moment whenever I found out. And we share that with our generation. We, we pass that along. That's what he's saying here. He says, listen, what I'm about to tell, talk to you about, he said, what's happening? He said, you're going to talk about it with your kids, and they're going to talk about it with their kids, and they're going to talk about it. This. this is going to be passed down for generations because of how drastic what's happening Yes. See, the destruction they were facing, it didn't come at the hands of some army. No, it came at the wings and the teeth of locusts. Look at verse number 4. He says this, That which the palmer worm hath left, left hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. He says, listen, there was a storm of locusts that, that came in that darkened the skies and it consumed everything green in the land. There was nothing left. No crops to grow. No fields to be harvested. Nothing to feed their livestock. Everything had been consumed. This was a big deal. I mean, it was not something like they hadn't, hadn't experienced maybe since the days of Moses. I mean, they hadn't seen anything like this uh, in, in, in generations, in, in centuries. This, this plague that had taken place that had consumed everything that, that was edible in their land. Everything was consumed. In verses 6 and 7, he goes deeper. He says, for a nation. And as he talks about a nation here, he's not speaking of a nation of people. He's talking about a nation of locusts, of these these animals, these plagues. A nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are as the teeth of lions." hath the cheek teeth of a great lion he hath laid waste my vine uh, laid, laid my vine waste, barked my fig tree, he hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. the branches thereof are made white he said, listen, there's not even bark on the trees; it's completely destroyed, but not only were they dealing with the with the plague of the locusts, but they were also dealing with a drought that was Leading to wildfires that were consuming their lands. Look down at verse number 19. He says, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up, the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Joel pins these words under inspiration of God, the readers. As they would read this and they would look around, they'd nod their heads in sorrowful agreement that this was the sad situation that they found themselves in. Everything was gone. Everything was destroyed. They had nothing left. I mean, they didn't have the, the, the feed to be able to feed their livestock, so their livestock was dying. They didn't have meat to eat. And listen, that's a big deal, alright? I like to eat meat. Uh, they, they, they didn't have anything. Everything was, was gone, utterly destroyed. And listen, it was a plague. It was a famine that they would talk about to their children for generations. Stories would be passed down. But it wasn't just the plague and the famine that they would be passing down. Don't miss this. They would also pass down the lessons that they learned during that time of trial. Because God never wastes a trial. He wanted them to learn from this hard time that they were going through. In verse number 5, he says to them, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, he says. React, respond. In verse number 8, he says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth and with the husband of her youth. In verse number 11, he says, Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl ye vine dressers." In verse number 13 and 14, he says, Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, howl ye ministers the altar come lie all night and sackcloth you ministers of my god for the meat offering the drink offering is withholding from the house of your god sanctify ye a fast call a solemn assembly gather your elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the lord your god and cry unto the lord he said listen this trial that's come upon you don't let it go to waste don't just let it pass by learn and respond to it. God has a purpose for the trial. God has a purpose for the famine. God has a purpose for what you are facing. You know, I've heard numerous people over these last couple of weeks who who have come and have talked with me and, and have said, man, I'm just so amazed because just a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of Habakkuk and we were talking about what was taking place in the days of Daniel and how the the nation at that time was doing many of the same things that we see happening today they were they were trying to rob the people of their identity by by taking them to a making their land a foreign land and and changing their language and changing their names and and then we saw as they were trying to 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 take and emasculate their And cause gender confusion, and and we talked about all that. And some I've had multiple people that have come up to me and say, Man, I'm just blown away at how similar things were back then to what they are today. Now what's amazing is how often that even with the playbook written for us, (laughs) we still watch history repeat itself. Isn't that true? I mean, like you can look back and say, yeah, I remember when, so, when this was happening, when this was going on, and wow, it seems like it's repeating itself. You see it with fashion, don't you? Uh, things that, uh, you, know, you, you, you know, you can probably remember, uh, you know, that, that there were clothes that maybe you wore, whatever, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and, and now it's coming back in style again, and you're like, wait a second, didn't we just do this, you know? And, uh, you know, and, 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 and that, that happens in and, and the cabinet world that I, that I work in. It's, it's so funny, uh, you know, golden oak was like all the rage for a long time. In fact, many of the houses probably in this room, you probably have golden oak cabinets. You know, that that, that, that oranges, yellow type of cabinet, right? And, and uh, you know, and the, uh, and, and the, it just faded out. Nobody wanted golden oak. And then here recently I saw a magazine and on the front page of the magazine, I mean the very, I mean the very front, was a slab golden oak cabinet. And I'm just like, my goodness, we're doing this again already? And it's just things come in phases, right? And, and it goes through. But listen, it's not any different when it comes to history. You see things come and it's like, wait a second, I feel like we've been here before. I feel like we've seen this before. I feel like we've been through this before. And what's sad is we watch history repeat itself over and over and over again. Why? Why? because we don't learn from what happened before. Can I remind you, parents, it isn't the job of this preacher to teach your children to live godly. Now listen, I'll do my best to preach the Word of God. I'll do my best to try to capture their heart and and, and not be too boring on a Sunday morning. But listen, it's your job. It's your job. It's your duty To teach your children how to live a godly lifestyle. It's your responsibility to train up the child in the way that they should go. It's your job. It's your responsibility. Teach your kids the Bible and what it says. Warn them of the mistakes of past generations. Even mistakes from your own life. See, the greatest way to learn is not from experience. No, it's from other people's experience. So teach them. See, we need grandparents who will teach their grandkids how to avoid the mistakes of past generations. We need, listen, we need young people who will actually search out the counsel of previous generations. Oh, teenager, I remember what it was like being a... Being a teenager, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. It's getting further and further away. I'm sure many can uh, identify with that. And, uh, but I mean, I, I can remember going over to my grandparents' house and my grandpa sitting down and wanting to tell us stories. And I'll just be honest. I mean, listen, I was an average teenager. It was like, man, is this ever going to end? I mean, I remember That's how, that was how it was, and maybe you can sympathize with that, maybe you remember that, but I remember as I got a little bit older, and, and even as I graduated from high school and went to college and things, and then came back, and as my grandparents were getting older and, and age, and I'd go to their house, and all of a sudden it would change, and no longer was it a, a task to sit and listen to their stories, no, it was something that I wanted to hear, I wanted to learn from. Man, today, if you can find somebody that's got a few generations ahead of you and you can go and you can sit down with them and just say, hey, teach me thy ways. Hey, listen, that's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing to do. And young person, can I encourage you, it'd be good for you to set the phone down for just a minute and turn off the TV and take the earbuds out of your ears and pay attention for just a minute and actually learn from somebody that's been through the heartaches that they're trying to prevent you from going through. See, we need the elders to teach the younger about the goodness of God, even through trials. Philippians chapter number 1, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I think, over in Sunday school, but in verse number 29, it's one of the most powerful verses when it comes to this matter. It says, for unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ. He's given you a gift, not only to believe on Him. Everybody loves the gift of salvation. Everybody wants the gift of salvation. Everybody loves to talk about it. We mentioned it a couple weeks ago. We have songs that we sing about how uh, the, the salvation of God, and we love to sing about the goodness of God and the glory of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. But we don't have any songs about, many songs about the second part of this. See, unto not not, not you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. He says, I give you the gift of salvation. But, oh, listen, on the same verse, I give you the gift of suffering. Nobody likes that one. Nobody wants to go through suffering. Nobody wants to sub, uh, to face the difficulties in life and yet God says, this is an opportunity for you to grow. This is an opportunity for you to, to give me glory through your response and the way that you react to what I am doing in and through your life. You see, we need some Barnabases who will encourage some Marks. We need some Pauls who will teach some Timothys. And it's time that we wake up and pass along some of those lessons that you've learned. Time to wake up and listen to those who are doing the teaching. To invest in others. Listen, it takes time, but that investment is always worth it. Can I encourage you, learn to share what you have learned from your trials and from your experiences. Oh, parents, grandparents, listen, God's... God wants to use you in that way. God wants to use what you have been through to be able to help someone else. As you go through the trials, as you go through difficult things, as you faced all the, 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 the suffering and the sadness maybe that you've been through, God gives you an opportunity to take that And to be able to turn to somebody that maybe is younger than you that hasn't been through what you've been through. And for you to be able to look at them and say, you know what, even through that, God is still good. God is still good. Caleb said it earlier, but it's so true. Listen, our praise, our worship to God should not be based on our circumstances. They should be based on who He is. And no matter what we face, he is always good. Well, in chapter number one, he tells him, he says, listen, there's, you're going through a destruction like you've never experienced before. Something you're going to talk about for years and generations. Learn from it and teach it to your children. But as bad as things were in chapter number one, Joel was just setting the stage for what would be discussed in chapter number two. In chapter number 2, he begins in verse number 1 by saying, Blow ye the trumpet of Zion, and sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm. The blowing of the trumpet was used to gather people for an occasion or to warn them of a coming danger. And listen, in this situation, it was the second reason, not the first. Joel proclaims in verse number 1, The day of the Lord cometh and is nigh at hand. Now, when Joel said this, he wasn't referring to a specific day in history. All right. He wasn't referring to this exact day. That's not what he was talking about. He was was referring to a period of time. It's kind of like how we might say: hey, listen, we live in a day of technology, all right? You might have heard somebody say that. You might have said it yourself. We live in a day of technology like never before. Now, you would understand in me saying that, that I'm not saying that we live in a single day, right? This day, exactly this day is a day of technology. Now, tomorrow is going to be different, okay? No, no, you would understand. Listen, okay, when I say we live in a day of technology, it's a its a—it's a period of time. It's not just a single day. That's what he's talking about here. When he talks about the day of the Lord, he's not talking about a specific day. No, it's talking about a period of time, but... but The point is this, the phrase the day of the Lord, it it was referring to a day of judgment and reckoning with Israel. In chapter number 2, of uh, Joel proclaims this coming judgment. He describes it as coming from, not 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 the locust, but coming from an army. He describes it just like that, that plague that had overtaken and destroyed the land, so that same type of destruction, utter destruction, would come upon Israel. Similar to what he had said in chapter number 1, he speaks in verses 2 and 3, he says, A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and strong there hath been ever the like neither shall be any more after it even to the years of many generation a fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth the land is as the garden of Eden before them and behind them is a desolate wilderness yea and nothing shall escape them he says it's going to be utter destruction that's coming it was a prophecy that would be in part fulfilled with the destruction of the Israelites at the hands of the Assyrians the hands of the Babylonians, but in a greater way, it's a prophecy of destruction that is still to come. You see, as we come to verses 10 and 11, we're reminded of the eschatological timeline. In verse number 10, he says this, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moons shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong and executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Let me try to help you with something to to understand from an Old Testament prophet's perspective okay in the old testament prophets perspective they did not see this age that we are living in they did not see the church age that we're enjoying today this age of grace remember the old testament is primarily dealing with israel the prophecies that we find is god's judgment dealing with israel and so whenever the prophets would look, they would look and they would see, okay, they would see almost like two mountains, right? If you ever, you ever uh, went, went hiking before, or you, I mean, it's hunting season. I mean, a few of you guys went out yesterday, I'm sure. and sure there's some out today. I mean, you, you, you go hunting and what happens? You, you look up and you see the top of the mountain. In fact, I was, I was talking with someone recently. We looked and we saw the top of the mountain. They said, that doesn't seem that far away. What you can't see is how that mountain, it goes like this. Up, 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 down. And then it goes up, 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 and down. And up, 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 and and you have all those valleys in between. But from your perspective, all you see is a continual upward climb, right? That's all that you see. That's all that we can see from our vantage point. That's how it was for the, the prophets of the Old Testament. They would look and they saw, okay, here's God's working with Israel. And it looked like it just kept on going until the second coming of Christ. They didn't see the dip in between where we have this age called the church age. So for them, it was a linear timeline. For them, it was a continual thing. They didn't see the time that we live in today. Listen, they didn't understand that there would be a period that would come to a conclusion at something called the rapture. They didn't understand that. The the next event on God's prophetic timeline is this event called the rapture. It's it's from a Latin word, rapti or rapti, which literally means to catch up, to to call away. At the rapture, all those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, living and dead, will be called up to meet the Lord in the air. The way that you can remember this is the rapture. He comes in the clouds. He doesn't come all the way down. The Bible says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so we have this event called the rapture in which the church, the believers, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, the Bible tells us that he's going to come into the cloud and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the trumpet's going to sound and when that happens, boom, gone. They've made movies about it. They, they talk about it and things like that. Uh, we, we've mentioned it here before that, that the twinkling of an eye is roughly 11 hundredths of a second. You say, how fast is that? It's real fast. Okay, that's how fast that is. Boom, gone. That's it. Meet the Lord in the air. When that happens, shortly after, there will be a man who is, has come on the scene who we know as the Antichrist. He's the antithesis of everything that God is. But he will come on the scene, and, and he will begin to do many great things that will give him a p- position of power, of prominence in our world. And, and, and once he, he rises to that position of power and prominence, he will do something that, we, that has been tried to be done for, for generations. He will form a peace treaty with Israel. And that peace treaty is formed. The eschatological time clock starts. And that's the beginning of a seven-year period known as the Tribulation. The Tribulation. A time where God's judgment and wrath will be poured out on the world and and specifically dealing with Israel like we've never seen before. In Revelation, we we find... That there are three groups of seven judgments, alright? 21 judgments total that will be poured out on the world over this period of seven years. Listen, if you're getting glassy-eyed or glassy-eyed here and you're getting lost a little bit, stick with me, okay? This is important. I want you to, I want you to get it, okay? Some of those judgments, some of those 21 judgments, we, we have from the scriptures the percentages of the world's population that will be killed. He tells us a third here, a fourth here. He tells us that this many people are going to die. So, if if with the world's population that we have today, let's just imagine for a second that the rapture took place at this moment, right now. Okay, I thought maybe it was going to happen, okay, but you know, okay, I, you know. Real prophet here, okay? You know, a, <laughs> listen, by the way, the Bible says no man knoweth the day or the hour that the Lord return. okay? So no, nobody knows when it's going to happen, okay? It could happen right now. It could happen in a hundred years. From, we don't know. I, I personally think it probably is sooner than later, but we don't know for sure. But when that rapture happens, when the peace treaty is signed, if it was to happen today with the population that we have on the earth, it's estimated that there's about eight and a half billion people on this earth if that was to take place today and, 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 and just kind of doing some math and we'll get further in detail on this whenever we actually dive into some eschatology type things, if we were to take the numbers that we have today, And we were to apply a couple of the judgments that we know the numbers to. For example, in the fourth seal judgment, there's going to be death that's released. And it says a quarter of the world's population will die by plagues, disease, or beasts of the earth. And in the sixth trumpet judgment, he says that an army is going to kill a third of the world's population. So just based on the numbers that we know, if the rapture were to happen today, over the next seven years over half the earth's population would be killed. Four, over 4.5 billion, with a B, people, would lose their lives in the coming destructions. And probably more than that. That's based on the numbers that we know. It's with the knowledge of that coming judgment... The knowledge that that during that period of time that there's going to be more persecution, more suffering, more pain inflicted on the world that has ever been seen in all of history. It's with that in mind that Joel penned the words of verses 12 and 13. Therefore, also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. See, in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that when somebody was was broken. When they were mourning, they would take their garment and they would tear it. The, the, we know from, example, like the book of Job, whenever Job was, lost his family and was going through all of those things, that he tore his garment, and the Bible says he put on sackcloth, this, this itchy garment, and he sat down in sackcloth and ashes. It was, it was a sign of, of extreme mourning, extreme brokenness and, and, and sorrow. But here's what had happened to the believers here. They had come to the place where they would wanted to show everybody just how spiritual they were. Just how religious they were. Just how truly humble they were. They were they really were the definition of humble and proud of it. <laughs> and so they would tear their garments as a show for everybody to see at just how spiritual and religious they were. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm just so, so sad. I'm just so, so humble. I'm just so spiritual. An appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And God said, I'm tired of your torn garments. I, I don't want your appearance of humility. I'm not interested in your display of spirituality. He says, listen, I want your heart, not your garments. Like the Pharisees of the New Testament, they were whited sepulchers that looked good on the outside, but were dead on the inside. And God was tired of it. And can I tell you something, Christian. He isn't a fan of it today either. Friend, in light of what we know is coming and could happen at any moment with the rapture, in light of the destruction of those that would be left behind and what they would face, most of which, many of which, would not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior during that period of time and would spend eternity in a lake of fire because of what they would go through in light of that. The writing this morning is proclaimed to you and to me. Therefore, also now saith the Lord, turn ye into me with, with your, all, all your heart, with fasting, with more weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments, God says. God is not interested in your spiritual showingness, He wants your heart. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and, and, and saveth such as of a contrite spirit. David understood this. That's why in Psalm 51, when he was in sin, he wrote to the Lord in verse number 17, and The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, Thou wilt not despise. He said, God, I want to be real. You know, Hollywood pays people millions of dollars, millions, to pretend. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, like my kids, they pretend all the time. I don't give them a dime. I mean, I just say, you oh, know, it's the way that it is. But Hollywood pays people millions of dollars to pretend to be somebody that they aren't. Isn't that kind of funny? And the better they are at pretending, the more money they make. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, right? It's a weird world that we live in. You know, it's kind of, kind of a strange thing. Uh, you can go to to New York, and I remember Tress and I went there a few, uh, so, some years ago, and, and uh, you, we saw signs for some of the Broadway shows. We didn't go to any, but we saw the signs, and, and what is it? It's people that go to Broadway, and they sing, and they dance, and, and they act, and they pretend to be somebody that they are, and they get paid large amounts of money to do it whenever I was a kid the only time that I really pretended like that was whenever I was in third grade I I was in the Christmas story and I was Marley I remember, and, and I remember they had to put on a wig and, and put on a little bit of like makeup and stuff like that so I could pretend to be Marley, and I thought, man, this just isn't for me. You know, <laughs> it's just not my, not my cup of tea, right? And, uh, you know, they had me at the wig, but they lost me at the makeup. I just, you know, it just wasn't my, wasn't my thing, right, you know, to, to do those things. What, what are you doing? You're acting like someone that you really aren't. You know, people in Hollywood make millions, yet I believe the greatest actors can often be found in churches all across our nation and our world. And maybe even here today. See, my fear is that this room could be filled with actors. Pretenders. On a multitude of levels. Matthew chapter number 7 is an interesting passage. In verse number 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying there? He says, listen, there's some people that are going to pretend that I'm their God. They're going to say religious things, speak in religious ways. might even look like they are religious and spiritual. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, that's, that's the one. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name? Thy name cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works. And then I, will I profess unto them, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You know what's scary about those verses? It's in verse number 22 where the Bible says, many will say. Many will say that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to stand before God and say, hey God, I went to church. God, I was a good person. God, I, I put money in the offering plate. God, I was, I, I, I was baptized. God, I, 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 was, I was this, I was that. I did all of these things and God's going to say, okay, I'm glad that you think that you got it, but here's the problem. I never knew you. We've said it before, but sometimes in an invitation we'll do a raise of hands where we'll say, if you know Christ is your Savior, raise your hand, and people will raise their hand. Do you know that there's going to be an invitation at, in heaven one day? But here's the difference. We're not going to raise our hands and say, yes, God, I know you. He's going to raise his hand and say, if he knows us or not. The Bible says many will be in that day. They'll say, I did a lot of good things. But he's going to say, but I never knew you. You never accepted me as your Savior. See, if Jesus were to come back at this moment, you'd be left behind. You're an actor pretending to be a Christian, but God's not interested in your religious games. He wants your heart. You remember what he said in Romans chapter number 10, verses 9 and 10? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth, excuse me, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Do you know there's a lot of people that are going to miss heaven by about 12 to 18 inches? just depends on how long your neck is. <laughs> They have the knowledge, but you've never received Him as your Savior. Friend, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've never asked Him to forgive you for your sins, friend, you're playing a game, and it's not a game you're going to win. Wake up this morning and rend your heart, not just your garment, because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon shall be saved, and if you're playing that game this morning, I'd encourage you, hey, get it settled, get it nailed down, and accept Him as your Savior. But here's what I'm guessing, I'm guessing that the majority of the crowd this morning would claim to be a Christian. Let's be honest, you may be on the right team, but you've been sitting on the sidelines for a long time. I wonder this morning, what's it going to take to wake you up? What's it going to take to stir you? What's it going to take to to get you off the sidelines and get in the game and get in the battle for the Lord? We talked this morning in Sunday school about how we're in the army of the Lord that we're supposed to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. What's it going to take for you to stop sitting on the sidelines and and just sitting in complacency and apathy and, and, and just content to watch people die and go to hell? What's it going to take to wake you up? Because listen, friend, I don't know that there's anything that I can do. And I can say this, if you don't get stirred by the reality that one day Jesus is going to come back and billions of people are going to be left to suffer the wrath in that seven-year period, if, if, if that doesn't wake you up, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know what it's going to do. This morning, God's not interested in your garments. He wants your heart. He wants you to crucify your pride... Have a broken heart before him so that he can use you for his glory. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for your life. I have with me this morning a $20 bill. Someone this morning is going to walk out of this room with this $20 bill. And it's me. Okay, So there you go. Now just settle that right now. (coughs) $20 $20 is, is a great thing to have. In fact, uh, years ago, it, it felt really good to have a $20 bill. Now, it's like that doesn't really go very far, but it still feels nice to have a $20 bill. It's better to have a 20 than a 5 or a 10 or, you know, so, some of the other smaller denominations, you know. And uh, my kids, they, they don't really understand. They would rather have change than dollars, and so I make trades with them all the time. And so, but no, I'm just kidding. $20 is great to have. But let's say this morning that I was really thirsty. And, and let's just, I, I feel like this maybe is the Holy Spirit leading, but let's say that we got a pot machine and put it out in the foyer out here. I don't know, you know, maybe I feel like that would be a good idea. And there would be one drink that it would contain, only one drink, and the drink that it would contain would be Dr. Pepper, because that's the best. Okay, uh, that would be it. All right, it would be full of Dr. Pepper. And let's say this morning that I wanted a Dr. Pepper from the vending machine. And I walked over to that vending machine with my $20. Wouldn't do me any good. In fact, I don't know for sure. We would probably set ours up where it would accept it. But most vending machines, I think, if you put $20 in, it would spit it back up. Can't accept it. can't receive it. can't use it. You can't get what you want out of it. Why? Because that $20, even though you have enough that you could buy multiple Dr. Peppers, you can't use it. What has to happen with that $20 bill before you use it in that machine? any ideas? Yeah, hand, hand, you're very kind. You, your hand is raised. What would I have to do with this $20? You'd have to break it. Genius right there. A round of applause. Good job. All right, yes, uh, yes. Are you hanging out with her? Or is, is she your friend? Okay, well, you know, I'm just kidding. All right, yeah, good friends. All right, so Listen, you have to break it before it's useful. A broken and contrite heart, O God, that will not despise. God says, rend your heart, not your garment. See, before Jesus fed the 5,000, he first took the bread. And what did he do? He broke it. Before Mary poured the ointment on Jesus, what did she do? She broke the box. Before God used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he put them in the backside of the desert for 40 years. And when God spoke to him out of that burning bush, you know what Moses was? He was a broken man. He said, God, what could you do with me? Exactly what God could use. The Bible still tells us in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life and live for himself shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Paul said it in Galatians chapter number two. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe for once in your life, we should come to the Lord and pray, God, instead of fixing everything, why don't you break my heart so that you can use me? In this book and the rest of the chapter number two and chapter number three, just what would happen for Israel and what would happen to Israel, Joel records for us. When Israel would rend their hearts, and not just their garments. In verse number 18, he says, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. In verse number 27, he says, And he shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. None else and my people shall never be ashamed. In chapter number 3, promised victory over their enemies. It's almost like God is fulfilling the promise that he said in Second Chronicles 7.14, when he said, Of my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In the healing that you find in chapter number three, there's only one place that it could be. It could only come at the second coming of Christ where he returns, and we talked about it last week, wins that battle and sets everything aright. Let's stop playing games this morning. Stop putting on a show and being an actor in the Christian life and instead turn to the Lord with all our heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend our hearts and not just our garments. The name Joel, pronounced Joel, might be the actual correct interpretation, the way of pronouncing it Joel. The first part, Joe, it's made of two Hebrew words. The first part, Joe, is short for Jehovah. El, the second part, is short for the Hebrew word Elohim, which means God. Joel's name literally means Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. I wonder this morning, is Jehovah the God of your life? Is he truly the God of your life? Today, maybe, we should stop pretending. And acting like, oh yes, yes, that's, that's, he's my God. No, no, no. Maybe today would be a good day to say, God, I actually want to make you the God of my life. And choose to rend your heart. Not just your garment. Let's get, let God have his way and be God of our lives. Let's have heads about and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to be able to open your word today. Thank you, God, for the book of Joel and what we can learn from it. I pray, Lord, that for many in this room, Lord, we would settle and decide, Lord, that we're not going to just keep playing games. God, that we're not going to just keep rending the garment while our heart leaves unchanged. I pray, God, today that we would truly respond to you. We truly allow you to work in our hearts and our lives like only you can. God, I pray there would be some people that wake up this morning and allow you to truly be Jehovah God of their life. Heads bowed and with eyes closed this morning. We're going to have a time where you can respond to the Lord. I'd encourage you to respond to him.